The sun is down, the streetlights are on, and you're listening to Largely the Truth with Brennan Store. To all you restless sleepers and midnight creepers, bleary-eyed truckers in the graveyard shift, this is Brennan Store, and you're listening to Largely the Truth. Whether you're staring at a screen or the lines on the road, all is well. For the next little while, it's going to stay that way. Because I'm here, you're there, and together, we're going to explore the night. Welcome back, folks. This is Largely the Truth. I am your host, Brennan Store, and this is the show where we find some of the most interesting people we can and see what the world looks like from their point of view. And on this show, we have a great, great guest. Now, for a little background, Largely the Truth started its life as a radio show on 92.5 Stoke FM. It was a weekly music show that ran from November 2017 to November 2019. And it was during the course of running that music show where I would feature the best independent music I could find, that I met tonight's guest. Now, over the last couple years, we've gotten to know each other through the magic of social media, but this is the first time we've actually had an opportunity to sit down and have a proper conversation. And it was one hell of a conversation. Tonight on Largely the Truth, we're going to put a call out to the man himself, frontman for Riot at the Dojo, Mr. Lee Bennett. My guest tonight is a man who first came to my attention as the vocalist for the activist hip-hop group Riot at the Dojo, but there's so much more. Not only was he, as part of the group Old Schooly High, winner of Vibe Magazine's first national rap battle, he's also a professional non-violent crisis de-escalation specialist who works full-time in zero-barrier homeless camps, and was recently hired to work as a crisis responder to replace the police for 911 calls. He is Lee Bennett. Lee, welcome to Larger the Truth, man. I really appreciate it. I've uh, been trying to get you in a vocal space for so long. I'm such a huge fan of you guys. So Oh, shit, man. Thank you very much. I'm a massive fan of the riot. Says, as soon as I heard Speak Truth to Power, I was right. hooked. Absolutely hooked. Did the shot ring out from the tower? Rise up and speak truth to power. Do we fail at a final hour? Well, that's the great thing about social media, you know, is that so many of our relationships on social media are kind of disingenuous. You know, we like you and you like us and that kind of thing. But every once in a while, and they're just, you know, we're helping each other, you know, we're helping each other out there in the world. But every once in a while, you you actually start to consume content, right? And you kind of go down these rabbit holes. And, and so then it's cool later, like with you, it's cool later. Um, when you realize, oh, it's mutual, you know, like we both like each other. Yeah. For a long time, you just think, I just think like, I'm a fan of theirs. I wonder if they know who we are. It, it happened to me recently with a, a, this, that a, a minority surfboards, this uh, really great shaper that lives in Japan. And I just love everything about this guy, right? And watch him all the time and everything. And then find out he liked the music. I was like, I didn't even know you knew who I was. So that's kind of cool when it's both ways, you know. Uh, it's, 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 as you say, social media is usually kind of a, 
not necessarily kind of a shit show, you know, as I said, it doesn't, yeah. you don't really get a sense of connection. And so it is, it's really, really nice yeah, when, that, when that happens. So I, I'm really curious. I mean, there's so much to talk about here. So I was thinking maybe we'll talk about the riot first and then that kind of, you think that will lead into your, your work experience. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a good idea because you know, they're, they're actually connected in a, in a, in a, in a weird way. So let me, let me just start. I'll just do, I'll do a interesting backstory. That's like uh, kind of how this all got going. Sounds good. Cause this started election night, 2016. And on that night, I, you know, as a lot of people were in, in, in the United States, I was incensed at what just happened. You know, we all watched all that, you know, what Trump and everything occur. Of course. And, you know, I, I had just not, I had not had a band together for a while. I just decided, like, I was thinking, what can I do? You know, like what actual, like I, you know, I volunteer, I do all the things that I do, but like, what can I do? And, and that was, I was like, okay, I can, you know, this is my skill set. I can have a voice here. And, you know, so that's how that got going. But when I started it, it was part of a bigger problem for me. So I came up in hip hop and, you know, I, I was in my first rap group in 1989. It was a long time ago. And so, you know, everything with me and I, I, I love hip hop music. It's the music I love. It's what I listen to 99% of the time. And, you know, I, I've had a beautiful hip hop career. I mean, my... My hip hop career is, uh, for most underground people, is lovely, right? I, first of all, my, my, and what led me here is I came up in a different era, kind of a pre Eminem era. And so back then there was a rule and it was, you know, loose and it was, you could have one white guy in every studio, right? And no Interesting. more, right? And, and white rappers back then, they weren't, they weren't, a joke it would they were more like they were more like um like a sideshow it would you would be in a room and people would come in and say oh, oh, oh hey man check this out watch this hey hey dude rap right. and it would be funny like kind of that this white guy could kind of rap a little bit you know it was sort of like an oddity but you didn't get hated on it wasn't like a negative reality so i spent my entire career in hip-hop in those environments and I went through transformations with that. You know, I kind of started off a little bit like B-boy where I was trying to pretend I was somebody I wasn't. I moved forward, you know, because white guys usually come to hip hop for a couple reasons. One is they're conscious, right? They come in through like uh, Roots or, or somebody like that common. The other is that they're sort of cultural appropriate, right? They're just right. sort of, you know, they just want to have the look and the feel and the scene. And so I was probably a mix of both, you know. Um, but here I was going through this and, you know, only white guy in every room and all this stuff. And vibe happened. I was, like, super lucky to be involved with the different rappers and producers I was over that. And Old Schoolie High is such a wonderful group. They're just such a bunch of cool guys. And you know, we had a lot of fun, you know, touring and all the great, you know, things. We had a – we did the um, – the uh, black college circuit with vibe. And that was super fun with all like, you know, Grambling and Howard and all those places. Uh, how old are you at this point with old school? Oh, high? I was, and I was already in my early thirties by that. Point. Oh, wow. And okay. I, I was on my sixth hip hop band at that point. In, Holy in shit. My reality. And, um, you know, that kind of just came together. 
with some a group of people and some people knew me and I knew them and we sort of made this group and we just started you know touring um kind of typical the way we did things but anyway I got to a point Brendan that I started having real problems with me and hip-hop I started looking around and I just couldn't find any I didn't understand why white rap was even a genre was even a thing it, it's so inconsequential to the overall scope of what hip-hop is it's like a teardrop in the ocean. You can count maybe 10 white rappers that ever matter. And in the grand scheme of this huge hip hop with all these different genres and everything, felt like I was walking around in somebody else's skin all the time. Like, um, like I was this conscious guy and everybody knew me and I was in, I was always the one white guy in the group of like all African-American guys. And so everybody liked my stamp. I had this great stamp. But inside, I couldn't figure out how white people were allowed to be in hip hop. It, it's, a, it's a music that came out of struggle. And even, even a white rapper, and either great white rappers, Eminem or Logic or some of these people that are just insanely great rappers, you know, even them, it's like, okay, but it is the voice of the oppressive, oppressor speaking through the music of the oppressed. Oh, wow. And I never considered that. How does that work, right? And I, in my own, like, as an artist, how does that happen? And so it got to the point after Vibe, which sucked because I finally got some popularity. Um, we finally started doing some things. It just got to the point where I could not do it anymore. I could not go out on stage or get on an album in that environment and not realize that what I was doing was cultural appropriation. And... It was a tough one for me. I love hip hop. It's a love affair for me. Words, I'm a writer, failed writer, whatever you want to say. Words matter to me. They've been my passion since I was five. They drive me in everything that I do. I love hip hop because of the poetry. It's the closest thing to Shakespeare we have left in the world, rhyme and meter. Even, you know, people talk about it in, in, in terms of its intuitive nature, and that's a racist code speak. It's, it's not intuitive. It's, it's if you look at Talib Kweli or any of these great uh, wordsmiths, it's it's hardly intuitive. It's a lot of structure. I was really shocked the first time one of my male friends, one of my white male friends said to me, because uh, I was describing uh, some kind of particular rhyme scheme, and they said, they're not thinking about that. Right. That's, it's just rhymes. And I was shocked at the ignorance of it. That again, right. it, it, they're just saying, oh no, it's it's just sitting down and saying words that rhyme. As if Shakespeare sat in his room with a ruler. right so funny yeah so yeah it's tough so anyway i got i just got i got i got done with it and fortunately i was with some musicians and people that understood where i was coming from and it was a decision and putting it away you know was really hard for me it was because i mean i got mike addicted so bad and i wanted that stage started doing poetry slam for years i've you know i actually won a bunch of city titles going around doing poetry slam oh no way I, yeah, I was doing that just for um, just for getting on the mic. I, I needed to be on, on the stage. I didn't really have anything to orate about. I was just I was sort of <laughs> I wanted I was starting doing storytelling. You know, I just was trying to stay with my language and words and stage. So anyway, now we go to 2016 election night. I decided I wanted to do a band, and so what I did is I decided I was not going to do a hip hop. Thing, that I was going to stay in a rock genre. A little little secret, I hate rap rock music. <laughs> well, you're it. in good company. I hate it with the deepest passion can be imagined. 
What about it do you hate? Like, what part of it is, is do you find objectionable? It, I feel like the rap is lazy. It's right. always so what it what it sounds like almost always. And I mean, some people like Limp Biscuit and people everybody like like. It's like somebody went in and figured out how to do a certain rhyme scheme, and then they just did it over and over and over and over again for ten years. Right. There's nothing interesting about any of it. It's just sort of dead fish on the track. And it's ironic because they make the, this really, you know, pop, like, you know, really hyper music, but the rhymes are just terrible. And when you listen to somebody like Rage Against the Machine, for instance, and you listen to the complexities of how Zach rhymes and how incredibly complex his rhyme schemes are and how he goes genre, it goes, how he changes songs between things like Bulls on Parade and Calm Like a Bomb and how his, everything about his rhyme style is different. He's like, he's a, he's a technician and that's what I like about hip hop. So yeah, it, it's just, you know, not my genre. It's not what I, I enjoy. And so I had this idea that what if I took a band and put it together, but the only rule of it was the two rules. One, you had to kind of be masterclass at your musician, your particular instrument, but also you, we, I didn't want two genres in the same band. So you had to come from a wholly different genre than everyone else. Oh, interesting. Right. And then way we would make music would be somebody would start and our process would become everybody kind of being in a studio, but then going home and just making your own stuff with no, nobody telling you what to do or, or giving you an influence, then bring it back in and, and just put it together. So I was looking for chemistry that we could then get in that situation and then organically over three hours create some structure, right? I pitched that to some musicians I knew and one of them, Pete, the bass player, the best bass player I've ever been around, just wanted to get in it. And so there was, originally there was no age requirement or no anything. Um, secretly, I just was about to start writing lyrics that I was not going to tolerate any editing. So I wanted to be able to have for the first time ever my own voice where whatever you heard coming off the track was exactly what I believe you could right. bank on it. And also not to take influence. I mean, you know, the only rule I have is if I say something that's so offensive that it offends one of the people in the band, they can tell me about it. We'll talk. Right. Doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to change it, but I will hear a conversation about it for sure. But that's about it. And so we put that together. We've had people from age ranging from 22 to 61 in the band. We now have a four piece like traditional rock setup. You know, everybody comes from their own genre. These people create together in a really fun and organic way. It's really easy. And um, we try not to take ourselves too seriously. We're all just about making things that are interesting. That's all we do. It's all we care about. We try to make interesting music, you know, and, and sometimes we succeed and sometimes we don't, you know, but <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, that's what, that's the process, right? Sure. And I mean, your debut EP alien America, that was 2018. Yeah. I think it came out in 2018. That's about right. Yeah. And that is such an alive record. We'll talk about the follow-up black box in a little bit, but this that sort of spontaneity you're talking about, you can hear it so clearly in Alien right, America. Our, 
what we're looking for, and I think Alien America, it's interesting you said that, because I think Alien America is a great example of that. What we're looking for always is to be on the highest quality level possible while keeping our sound really raw. And I mean, for instance, Alien America, I, there is no song on Alien America where there's any cut in any verse. Every verse on there is, is, is wrapped one time through. Oh, wow. Every one of them. And that's, there's no exception. And when so you've we, got lines like, uh, I'm the Haruki Murakami of rap, that's no small thing. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like my favorite author, by the way. I, well, um, thanks to you. I read one of his books. I, I, I picked up a copy of Hard Boiled Wonderland. A good one. Yeah, he's an interesting writer. But I'm an over-preparer, so um, I've never been a great rapper. I know who I am in, in this. If, 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 this, if hip-hop was the NFL, I'm a right tackle. Okay. Okay. I'm in the league. So I tell young bucks all the time, I'm in the league. So battle me at your own risk. I'm a professional, but I'm not the running back. I'm not the guy that runs for a hundred yards a game. I had to work really hard to get as good as I am. You know, my whole take on that battle culture and hip hop is that it, it's just another example of how racist America really is systemically. How so? Even in music. We live in a world where if you're not white, you all get to fight each other to see which person gets to actually be alive and gets to go right. at the end and maybe make some money. You know, it's 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 even that is a hunger games of you know, battle culture and hip hop is a hunger games of of oppression, you know, and not that I don't love rap battle. I came up in battle rap, but. Um, yeah, it's kind of how I look at my hip hop is, is, and how I, what I do, I try to get on the mic and be interesting. I, I created a style for this, but you know, I kind of know myself a little bit. I don't get involved in a lot of the like bravado of what hip hop is. I find it corny. The idea that I'm the best at anything in hip hop is ludicrous. And I feel like when people make those statements in the underground, it's just so, you know, it's just so kind of like, okay. It's like talking about how much money you make when in actual fact, we, we all know you work the shift at Arby's because we're working the other shift. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah. I'm the greatest rapper and I, I rented a Lamborghini for this shoot. So, I, you know, like it, all that just <laughs> keeps so funny to me. So I try to stay away from it. You know? I'll never forget reading, I think it was Rolling Stone did this piece on where they were hanging out with Rick Ross for a day. And it was great reading, but I think it was really bad for his image because it was very much a peek behind the curtain. You know, the, the Lamborghini was rented, you know, and the, uh, the box of the box of hundies at the strip club, there was, it was all singles underneath the, the, the bills on top. Absolutely. You know, again, great reading, but, and it, but it was enlightening for me because I, I had, you know, my, my knowledge of hip hop really is very limited, you know, sort of late nineties, early two thousands kind of Snoop Dogg, you know, sort of, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I know. So to, to read about this guy and thought, oh, so that's, that's how it works. So Alien America, let's, let's go, we'll, we'll start there. Alien America's out. Tell me a little bit about sort of what you did with that. Cause you guys made a lot of videos. You sort of went hard on, on that kind of stuff, but what was the experience of trying to get an audience for it? You know, I've been marketing in, under, in the underground for a long time and I kind of went backwards with this. I, I, at the beginning, I didn't really care very much. I sort of was more worried about just playing in Seattle. Right. And so we were just getting shows and getting on stage in good venues. And that was actually really great. I mean, all of the time, every time 
every time we would get up, cause people would see us come out and like, what are, what's about to happen? Right. And you know, we, we had some really knockdown drag out shows that were just insane. And we, this band is so live, right? Cause all the people in it are just all about live music. And so the recording for us is also fun. They're great at it, but it's more of a professional situation when you get in there with these guys. It's not the fun studio days of before they are fully focused with multiple spreadsheets of tracking they're going to do it, you know? Oh, wow. Right. They are really, I mean, Dave, Dave Weiss, my guitar player, he will lay down some ungodly number of guitar tracks when he's recording a song and then come back in in post-production and, start doing things that we're like, well, how do you make that, make that noise? <laughs> like, you like, oh, I thought it up in my head. So, you know, as far as marketing it and how we got out there with it, you know, we sort of just let it float for a while. In the beginning, all, we got more negative reaction than we did positive, but it was mostly just Trump stuff. You know? I was wondering if it was the political content. I, I know I, yeah. uh, the only time yeah. I get serious blowback over on ghost story guys is when I dare to suggest anything when i dare to mention american politics even in passing i'm accused of being anti-american despite the fact i'll preface it by saying how much i i love america and most of its people um but apparently for some people uh they don't understand that to love something is to want it to be the best version of itself absolutely and you know i have things i'm happy about like i have over 500 proud boys blocked on my main riot account <laughs> that is an achievement yeah you can't get that unless they come on and say some horrible thing that I then delete off my account. And I, I'm all about free speech. I just am also about the fact that I get to have free speech, which is I'm not going to be a platform for that. Yeah, free speech means you can say it. doesn't mean I got to listen or give a shit. Right, exactly. Thank you. That's exactly so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm all about. I'm not trying to get you not to say it. I just, uh, I'm not going to have it. So I've got 500 of them. That's happy for me. People watch. I've gotten some comments about this. You know, I don't really advertise with Riot because I always feel weird about the idea of having a band that basically is all about politics. It's all about American political system and our culture. And then being like, you know, if you buy a button, I'll give you a free, you know, it's kind of, yeah. it feels weird to shill when sure. you have, which is normal. And if you can't, you know, Russell Simmons stuff, if you can't be more excited about your product than everybody else, you've already failed. Right. You know, I get out there, but it, it just feels really dis weird to me. And I've shied away from it in every way possible. And I'm going to continue to, you know, we advertise and I'm, I'm going to run some, you know, ads coming up for, we've got eight new singles coming out. Oh, that's and, amazing. Yeah. We've already recorded them all. We're just, our first one's called the great divide and it is, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be good down the road. There's some songs coming out, um, that we'll see if Riot of the dojo survives culturally survives this. Interesting. I've got, I've, yeah, I've decided to uh, just, you know, it was from mostly listening to all this rappers like uh, Tom McDonald and stuff and the woke and all the all the all that stuff. And that stuff just blows my mind when guys like Tom McDonald come out and start talking like that. It, it, it gets me in a place where I'm like, OK, I'm going to let my pen go. Right. I'm going to I'm going to tell these white dudes, myself included, what I really think about all that. Okay, and why why I think what those, what they're doing is not only dangerous, but is really dangerous. I mean, it's really it's a really dangerous reality. Sorry, you'll you'll have to forgive me. I'm actually not familiar with Tom McDonald. What is the what he broke is the internet a couple times? Um, he has all these songs that are about 
being woke, uh, fake woke. And basically what he is, he's somebody that's espousing to be sort of middle of the road or liberal, but then makes music that is pretty right wing. It just doesn't have a lot of the code speaking. So often that is the case with these people. Whenever I see a guy who says I'm neither left nor right, I, they always sway right. It, it never fails and it drives me crazy. It's like they say, I'm just being objective or logical. You absolutely are not. Absolutely are not. And it's okay. So I, so, you know, somebody else said this. I can't remember whether it was Black Thought or Talib Kweli or some, or Dave Chappelle. Somebody said this sentence before me, but they said about, and they were speaking about him, but they said, every one of your fans hates hip hop. And that's the thing is they go on and they drop a hundred million iTunes snatches. And he did that. And he got, he bought Eminem's beat and recorded on it. Okay. That's how much money he made. Wow. Yeah. And so he goes out there and, and, but that's the deal is every one of those people that bought that are just, they're all just Trump following right wing people who are love the fact that he's calling liberal snowflakes in his song and right. You know, all this stuff. And so, yeah, I'm going to, I've, I've got some music coming out to in response to some of that about like, why that is not okay. <laughs> what we need to be doing as white men in America. Like, what is our job now? That, you know, I, all these white guys are always around me. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, what do you mean? You know, like, I don't have a, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not allowed to have success anymore. Oh God. It bakes my brain, Lee. It, it drives me crazy. If I hear one right. more white dude tell me that he's not sure about how far all this stuff has gone, I'm going to lose my goddamn mind. <laughs> I know. It's like, it's like, it's, you know, it's so simple. It's very similar to the Me Too movement when what men were like, so you mean I can't like uh, make jokes about your body at work? No, you should never under any circumstances at your job ever talk about anything like that because it's work. Yes, that's the exact right thing. No, you can't do that. It's the same thing. It's like, what do I do? How about, you know, you know, okay, radical left-wing Lee. How about white men don't run for public office or are allowed to own a company in the United States for a hundred years? Okay. That's not going to happen. Sure. That that's, you know, not, not okay, whatever, but maybe just live that way. So go make art, get a radio show, get a thing. Let's get, you know, get out there and talk about it. Go work in the service field. And this, this gets into what I do for a living, you know, get out there and, and actually do something that, can benefit somebody that's not, I own everything or my opinion matters more than everybody else. Take a break from that for a while. Wouldn't that be great? And and I understand the irony of me saying that on my own talk show. I get that. But you know, like I'm smart enough to know when to shut up and let the rest of the room speak. Right. And I just feel like so many of these guys have not reached that point. They, for some reason, I actually got into an argument with a fellow I've known for quite a while about this about these church burnings uh, up here in Canada um, that have been sort of happening since the discovery of the, and and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the story, but they've discovered a lot of these uh, indigenous children buried in unmarked graves on the grounds. Yeah. So, and since then there has been a number of church burnings. And the thing is they have yet to actually catch someone in the act. So there is no way to know exactly who's doing it. But, um, you know, my opinion on this thing is, well, it's kind of dry. So if we're going to burn stuff, maybe pick a wetter season, but, Apart from that, you know, it's not my place to tell an oppressed people, if, if they're even the ones setting the fires, how to respond to centuries of injustice and the discovery of thousands of dead fucking children. That's not my place. Right. So, you know, again, it, like if they're trying to burn down my house, well, that's a conversation we can have. 
But and like, that doesn't mean you don't have an opinion about it. Yeah. Right. You may have an opinion about it, but I get into that all the time where it's like I'm in a room in my social work life and basically get told your opinion doesn't matter here or, or, or maybe your voice doesn't need to be heard on this. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff in that where I'm like, okay, so do I represent all white people or, but you know what? I'm okay with it. I can say, yep, you, you're probably right. I'll, I'll recuse my time to somebody else who's got something to say on this. Yeah. Because you just described how every person of color or woman or whatever, you just described their entire fucking life for the history of everything. And now I, it's our turn. Reckoning's here. Okay, good. Let's do it. That's it, right? And I'm I'm quite happy with that. You want to you want to burn down like you want to burn the whole operation down and re- rebuild it? Well, you know what? Fuck it. We didn't do a real good job. You know the planet's on fire. We have fire tornadoes for fuck's sakes. So you know what? We're gonna build it from the ground up. That's fine. I'll pitch in. I don't have much to take from me, so it's not like I've got a lot to lose here. You know, as long as you're not gonna try and like build a, a throne from my bones, which I don't think is a concern. Then hey, let's try something new because what we've done hasn't worked not really right now you and that you just summed up i I won't speak on that because that i could take that excerpt you just did and that would be my opinion of things so what i'll say is so that's where the riot came from i speak and this is something very important and now if you listen to my lyrics you'll it, it all becomes clear i speak to white men i am talking to generation a young generation of white males in my song and i don't make comments about what people's struggle is and what I think they should do about this, that being an African-American police brutality and violence. uh, Those, I will speak out about them, but I'm not offering understanding. I can only offer empathy in that. I can't. Absolutely. I have no way to understand it. And so stop pretending you can and be empathetic. I mean, that's my, look, my line and I got to do one of my new songs. My line is that white men in America need to stop figuring out how to be allies and try to start figuring out how to not be the enemy. 1,000%. I fucking love that. Man, that is such a great phrase. Because the thing is, you don't get to determine if you're an ally. Right. The people who need allies get to determine that. I I can say, oh, I'm an ally. That doesn't mean shit. Because if people don't feel safe around me, then I'm no good to anyone. And I think this is what's so hard for for some men to understand is that you can't just say a thing and have everyone just take you at face value you can't just you don't get to set the terms on everything and i think this is what some people find so very threatening is that you know that yeah it's it's like no your your opinion doesn't matter like this friend i'm talking about you know the idea that his opinion on a certain subject was not required incensed him in sensed him. And I was shocked. I was legitimately shocked that just the, this idea that, that his opinion on certain subjects is not required really just caused him to really threw him into a rage. Right. I, and I was just stunned because I've known this guy about 10 years and, you know, again, he's, you know, we're not close, but I'd never seen that side of him. And that really, really shocked me. So it's, uh, this is, I think these are like things like you're talking about. These are things people, especially white men need to hear. They do. And I feel like, I feel like simply, very simply put, and it's a little different between being Canadian and being American for sure. sure. Although Canada has its own history with chattel slavery and its own realities with that. And you'd already spoke about indigenous peoples and there's a lot of issues in Canada. And so, you know, I feel like um, what's important with Riot at the Dojo is that 
I'm always speaking from the perspective of a white male and I'm not saying them, I'm saying us because even people in the United States who, who have, you know, progressive ideas, white men that have progressive ideas, we are still living under a structure every day that in every way gives us advantage over all other people, even of all the same economic structure as us. So all this idea that in America, you can just be progressive enough and that's okay. It has to be in us because until I heard an analogy once that it's like a body on a table with all the operating with all the organs diseased. If you reach in and pull an organ out, replace it with a fresh one, it immediately begins to be diseased. Everything has to be taken out and replaced at the same time. Yeah. And so I, you know, I, I go with that. I'm, I'm not a anarchist, but I'm also not a person that is afraid of massive change. And I respect that. I mean, I am terrified of massive change. I'll be honest with you. You know, I got a little of that ADHD, you know, where I, it just changes, freaks the shit out of me. But at the same time, I've, you know, I've survived change before. So my, my thinking is I'll survive it again if that's what needs to happen. Because again, the only thing that keeps us going to me is, is hope. Hope is all we have. Right. And if there is no hope for the future, then w- what are we doing? And I think that what we're talking about, that kind of massive success, systemic change, and, and we'll bring it back to the riot here in a sec, but I think that is, that is where my hope comes from these days. Right. And I tell you know, any of my, my, my white friends who want to listen, I tell them all the time to stop being fake, meaning stop modeling sympathy. Model resolve. Yes. Right? Not sympathy. Nobody wants our sympathy. You know, that's fine and good. That's all whatever. Okay. People want change and resolve. Ha- change happens through resolve. And so that's the model for white men in America. You want to don't know what to do. Get resolved about working hard at whatever it is that, that you can offer, whether it go be from art to, to labor, you know, whatever. The voice matters. Everybody's voice matters. It's not like, you know, our voice doesn't matter. The perspectives that white men can have that can help other white men wake the fuck up is a good thing. I mean, it's a good thing. Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean, that's something that, again, over on, you know, my podcast, The Ghost Story Guys, you know, it's a ghost show, right? We, I don't like to talk politics, but, you know, I, I've drawn criticism from some people for saying things like, uh, if you're a man and you're out with a, 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 like an opposite sex partner or someone who's perhaps more vulnerable than you, you really need to be aware of their body language because we don't think, generally speaking, in terms of personal safety. But, you know, if you're out with someone who is, physically weaker than you and they could possibly be threatened by your presence and or or you know a situation you need to really be conscious of that but it's fascinating how much pushback something that seems so simple and and again i'm not doing it to score points i'm doing it because i have people i care about who have been in these situations and and i see the benefit of telling guys hey just just be aware of your surroundings and be aware of the people you're with okay so let's take that another level for it because i love that i mean and let's go to this which is that story about like men, men need to realize that like put $50,000 in a duffel bag and then go run around on the subway down somewhere and see how you feel. Yeah. Wondering if anybody's gonna, gonna know you have that and take it from you. You just describe being a woman anywhere, you know? And then when you work in my field where you deal with trauma all the time, and then you look at the statistics of the, of the amount of women, you know, statistics like 100,000 unused rape kit, uh, untested rape kits in America. Oh, God. You realize yeah. that we're a, we're a society of, of women in trauma. And we have language in our society like, um, 
violence against women. Well, where's the men in that? So, so you now you the, just the language itself, the men escape because most violence against women is is by men. We don't say men who do violence. We say women are having this violence done against them, and we don't really know who it is or what's going on about it. But it's it's just sort of that violence. It's that, that passive voice, that frustratingly passive voice. That, that yeah. And to your point, absolutely, men everywhere should be incredibly aware of the fact that the person you're with, depending on how well you know them, may or may not have experienced extreme trauma in their life related to men, to sexuality, to not necessarily just rape either. There's other realities of, of, of having their physical um, ability to do things taken away, right? And all that kind of trauma, you know, stacks. And so you're, you're with and watching body language and pair language and being able to understand when a person is extremely uncomfortable in a certain situation. And I think it's so important to to recognize that, yeah, this this is not just about rape, because I think men kind of hyperfixate on that. And I, I, I don't yeah. even want to get into the understanding why, but no, they do. You're right. Guys get hung up on, on that part of it. But I mean, I've had the shit beat out of me. You don't forget that. Like Absolutely. physical violence doesn't have to involve like specific violation. Just having someone beaten on you once, like it happened once. And I remember that shit. It's a feeling of vulnerability. And I, it's happened to me. I mean, many times. I mean, I, and I've been overwhelmed in all kinds of situations and it's a feeling of vulnerability. You have that taken away from you as a human being, not about gender as a human being. That is a, a, uh, can be a very scarring reality. You know, because it, it, it is a, an awful feeling. And I think so many of us, we kind of interact with the world almost like through a, through a window, you know, like the, most of us, I, I would say most of us in the West, I shouldn't say most, a, a lot of us in the West, a number of us are sort of uh, insulated against these kind of things. You know, a, phys- a physical altercation is, you know, it, it's unusual. That's not something we, we typically have to deal with. Right. So when that happens, when that glass breaks, and, and you, you sort of feel violence, you realize then the window doesn't go back. You realize then how easy it is for that violence to happen again to you, to someone you love, to anyone out in the world. And, you know, it's frustrating to see people who have no concept of that violence or, or sort of that, yeah, I mean, the, the danger in the world at large. It's frustrating when you can't communicate that to people because they are so insulated. And obviously you don't want to take away that insulation because you don't want them to suffer the violence, but right. to, to get them to understand that it's there is very difficult. That's just exactly it. it. Because when that glass breaks, and as you said, it does not reform, but meaning th- the next time it breaks, it breaks differently because the first time it breaks, <laughs> it's a epiphanal reality sometimes. I mean, it is just, you feel like you've walked through a door and I hear people describe that all the time, you know? That Absolutely. Nothing's ever kind of the same again. Because you feel vulnerable. That's it. You understand vulnerability in a way you just right. didn't before. Because we all, I think, especially young men, and I, I know I certainly had these thoughts when I was younger. You know, you think when the fight happens, you know, when, when the violence comes to you, well, shit, man, I got this sorted out. You know, I got to throw one of these, and I've seen how this works. And the actual reality of physical violence is so much uglier than that. And oh, it it's such a shock when you realize, and, and I should be, you know, totally upfront. I, you know, I was in a fight when I was pretty young, you know, I, I, this is not something that happened to me recently, but you know, when it happens, it's so fast and brutal and ugly. 
It is. And, you know, I, you just you just segued into what I what my whole reality is about with my work and everything else, because I came to my job in that reality. I came to it in the same reality that I left hip hop because I just refused to involve myself in something that I could not could not give myself a reason that it was not cultural appropriation. Right. I also came into this because I, I believe deeply, I came up through physical intervention and a lot of my work, social work and being a big, and I'm a big guy with about 250. And so I was always sort of, uh, you know, that guy, the kind of the gorilla in the room who would, would, they would keep around to, you know, do physical intervention and all that stuff. Um, and I, I just realized early that it was just terrifyingly bad. It represented everything about the male dominated patriarchal, high show, push everything down, bully mentality that we live in and everywhere in our world with everything, is per, you know, that's pervasive reality of this, of this, even how men learn to be men. They learn to be men in terms of their physical ability to, to either protect everyone or, or beat everyone in some way. And sure. we, we grow up in this world where we're waiting for our first fight to prove ourselves or to go into some armed combat or something to prove our, our, our male abilities to hurt and kill things. And, you know, I rail against that reality. I think that everything that's wrong with the world comes out of that. Um, I am, I do not believe in violence in any way, shape or form. I think that in my work in social work, though, yes, you can make a case that, that sometimes intervention and physical putting hands on a person could save people around them or be better for that. It is never the right thing for them. Okay. And realizing that sometimes that doesn't matter if, you know, you're going to lay waste to a whole room full of people, something has to happen. Right. But understanding that you need to have more reality of that. You need to understand how horrible, horrible it is for them. And it goes back to that same vulnerable reality we talked about earlier, that vulnerableness that, that it would, especially people that have high end behavioral health, addiction, mental health issues. That is, that is sometimes a schism that breaks them in half. Right. And so this idea of nonviolent crisis deescalation and crisis intervention, um, I, you know, I got into it some 20 years ago when it was a very unpopular thing. It was kind of, uh, you know, something that people thought of as sort of hippie. Right. So like it was sort of the long hairs would go in. They would they think they can talk their way into it, you know. And now, 30 years later, I saw a meme the other day. It was two police officers talking, laughing. And the top said, what are you laughing at? And the bottom said, we're watching a nonviolent crisis de- de-escalator try to handle this 400-pound naked man covered in shit. Okay. Right. I'm like 400 pound naked man covered in shit is what I do before breakfast. Are you kidding me? Cause that dude, <laughs> that dude probably needs food, a nap and maybe some quiet time and definitely a shower. And in anything you do to get him any part of that, you're going to find out how quickly he calms down. All right? right. So yeah, that's not any, that's nothing to laugh at. That is a part of the skill set that is so easy that it's not even anything. All right. It's something we do every day. And so, you know, those kind of ideas, it's grown, the field's grown. And now we're in our moment in the sun. (laughs) So, um, you know, that's kind of what brought me into it was this belief of 
that I was just going to do something to change this reality that you know, we, we, we use violence to solve our problems. So walk me through, say, a day, a day in your, in your life as a, as a nonviolent crisis de-escalator. What, what does that Absolutely. look like? Okay. So right now, I work in zero low barrier housing. And so what that is, that's a, that's a sort of battleground place for nonviolent crisis de-escalation. That's why I went there. I saw a, a, uh, what's called housing first, and it, it's something that believes in trauma reduction, harm reduction. Okay. So basically what all that is, I'll give you the, we could, there's like PhDs talk about this for years, but I'm a ground level grunt. Like I'm a guy that, you know, uh, that works with clients and, and, and people like that. So here's the thing. Housing first, you think about, you've heard all this stuff about the cracks in the system and people are falling through the cracks, right? Right. Well, after a while, there's no more cracks. So at, at, at the end of that, they hit the bottom. When there's no more cracks to fall through, they've tried everything. They've been in every, every rehab. They've been in all this. Their mental health so bad that they've been kicked out of five different medication therapy group programs. You know, and now they're, they've been on the street for 10 years, whatever. They're at the bottom. There's no service left to take them. They cannot get housing. There's nothing like that. When they hit that, the only door is our door. So we are zero barrier and low barrier housing, which means we take people in off the street that are homeless or unsheltered. And they come right in and they get a little uh, little efficiency apartment that's maybe two, 300 square feet. It's got a bathroom and a little kitchenette in it. And we have a building full of them and they come in. It's a locked door situation, but they can come and go. There's 24 hour staffing in there. And we are going to try to bring them in to some level of re to civility again. So w- what we see coming through the door is high-end schizophrenia, bipolar, depression. We have a lot of paranoid delusional, uh, auditory and visual hallucination. And then at least half the building at any given moment are heavily addicted to either heroin or meth, okay? Most people have a cocktail, what's called behavioral health, which is a combination of mental health and addiction. Most people have a cocktail of behavioral health or uh, what they, they call it a commingling condition. And, you know, you're talking about people that will pull out a machete on you because they really, really believe that somebody in their television show watching American Idol just told them to come down here and cut your head off. Right. That happens, right? So it is that environment. It is a thing. You, you know, my shifts are usually in the evenings. Um, it's when there's a lot more what we call show behavior or high high-end escalation. And what we do over time, we create behavior plans and we work with people over time to bring them back to civility. So we bring them first back to, I could just be around other people. And then once they can be doing that, we will move them maybe into some services where they can maybe look at getting some addiction issues or rehab, whatever, detox, You know, and the way it goes is on a general day is you are basically like a a weird concierge on Skid Row, okay, where you're walking around down there and you're out in the group with them. You have no weaponry of any kind on you, no mace, no anything that could protect you. It's hands only. And the rule in the building is staff is not allowed to put hands on residents no matter what. So, so even in a self-defense situation? 
way that works is we are taught self-defense techniques. We also have, um, we also have quick entry exit realities where we can like blow through doors with fobs and stuff. Okay. Um, And so it's escape and avoidance. I mean, you know, you get in a situation where it's your life, you do what you do. Right. You might lose your job on it, but don't die for it. Right. Okay. And we go there. Absolutely. But what we talk to people about all the time in training is if you get in a situation where your life's in danger, you did it wrong. Interesting. Okay. You should be looking at proximity. You should be having a much higher level of awareness of body language and pair language. You should have made a better assessment walking into that situation. You should have known where your escape routes were early. You should have kept a 10 foot radius instead of a two. There's all kinds of technical realities that, that, you know, you got to think on your feet in that job. And so, you know, we walk in and make assessments and you got to make the right assessment. It's not the, it's not the violent behavior that gets you killed. It's the lack of training. Interesting. For our listeners, just, I want to just point out and, and Lee, correct me if I'm wrong. A zero barrier homeless camp is, or, or, or a zero barrier facility or low barrier facility is sort of um, where someone can come where they are still using substances and find housing as opposed to what you might call traditional housing where you first have to be clean. Is that correct? Okay. So you just got it right on the barrel head. I mean, that is the nail right in the center is that 99% of all services related to social services in the United States, Canada is vastly different, much more progressive. But in the United States, 99% of all services require clean entry. So you have to go through a rehab or detox program to get in. And the barrier is not that you have already had to do it, but you have to do it to start. Okay. And when you're dealing with people with commingling conditions, people that are, are absolutely schizophrenic and untreated schizophrenic for 20 years. And wow. then, and are also highly addicted to heroin. Having that person have to walk through a doorway of detox is not possible. It's not even a, like whether I want to or not, that person does not have the mental health to make any kind of decision like that. So yes, the difference is in our building, you can do meth and heroin in the building, not in the common spaces, not in in places like that. We have fentanyl strips to test your drugs. Fentanyl's killing people right and left. I had eight, we've had eight bodies drop in, in my camp building alone. Um, oh man, yeah, it, it's it's been it's bad up epidemic. here too. An epidemic. And, you know, so we have all kinds of things like that. And, you know, people outside, they start thinking, well, so you're, you're basically a drug den. Just, Ugh. you know, and far from that. It, it is harm reduction and trauma reduction are absolutely wonderful tools in being able to bring people forward to become a responsible user because responsible users turn into not, not users. Okay, that's how you get to I'm, I'm clean is sometimes first you have to learn how to be responsible, how to not do things that are just going to get you killed. And then that movement towards some more cognitive thinking and critical thinking about those ideas opens up pathways and peer counseling and doorways where you can help people walk through doorways that they maybe before could not have. Got some medication, got some of their maybe maybe uh, behavioral health issues, at least calm down enough where they can have a baseline. And so, yes, I could have just said yes to you because <laughs> yes, what you said is exactly the deal. 
And that's why places like Housing First are so, even now, are so still sort of problematic to a lot of people. I mean, it's so funny. Even I work for the Catholics and I have issues with that, but I work for the Catholic Community Services, Catholic Charities. The reason I work for them is because they're the only ones in the space. Okay. Interesting. They're, yeah, no one else is there. So, and they're, the whole Catholic Community Services system is, you know, it's a, it's a Catholic charity system and they, they open these buildings and they have these camps and they have these little places that are opening more. Um, you know, it's an odd system. I still can't talk about abortion in there. And I can tell you stories that will fucking freak you out about some things that have happened in there um, related to pregnancy and, you know, things I got people sexually trafficked into pregnancy oh, and man. then they're in a Catholic building. So they're not allowed to hear about Planned Parenthood or any of that except for the Catholics don't have anything in place to deal with those people. They just pretend that they don't really exist. They're not people. And so then when you're front of the house, you are working through a woman who is pregnant, addicted to heroin and meth and has no services and mental health and was sexually trafficked into that situation. There's no one who can help her. And so those kind of situations go where I, you know, myself and others, we feed her, we do her prenatal vitamins, we take her to all her things, we do everything we can to get her to use less. So, you know, when we watch her go through that situation, we do everything we can to, to try to save that child. And then, you know, she runs off and, and, and goes off in the woods and half births the child, he dies in the middle of the woods, you know, and then you clean that up. And so, you know, it's hard to go back to the Catholic, the archdiocese after that. And they're like, well, maybe do a better job. And you're just like, do you know what I just, what just happened to me? Would you like me to give you the, the, the urn of this little tiny child's ashes and the, uh, the thing on their arm that has their birth and death day on the same day. All right. Oh, so, you know, you know, maybe rethink your policies a little bit. And so, yeah, it gets really problematic when you're working in religious space and I hate, I have nothing against uh, any groups, uh, religious groups beliefs. And they, I'm, I'm all about everybody getting to believe what they want, you know, but sometimes oh, yeah. it affects real people. I mean, I, I grew up Catholic, you know, I, I, I got no problem against someone wanting to be Catholic, but as you say, some, some of the practice, the institutional practices are, yeah. are I think they're monstrous. Yeah. Well, and you just stumbled into, well, this is going to be great because you just stumbled into me in a huge fight with the Catholics. I just whistle blew the Catholics. Oh, wow. So, yeah. It's a, it's a big, yeah. You got the, um, the, uh, health care workers union of America involved and all of that. And so it was all about fentanyl strips, you know, it was all about, they had the fentanyl strips, but they didn't want to bring them to the buildings because they were afraid that they would, you know, maybe get people using more drugs or they, and it was already legislated. All right. So I got people dying in my building from fentanyl overdoses and I've got the strips in, a, in an office two miles away. And I got the guy with this, who wants the strips came up to me that morning. And with, I'm sorry, the girl came up to me that morning and said, it, the strips here yet? No. And then flopped it out of the elevator. No deed in the afternoon. Oh, Jesus. You know, and it's like, it's like at some point you got, you're like, okay, I'm done. I'm done with this policy decision stuff, you know? So anyway, yeah, you stumbled into that. <laughs> no kidding. So, I mean, is that going to endanger your employment at all? No, not at all. And, um, and I'm, I'm moving over into the, to fund the police space anyway. So I'll be, coming in to answer calls in the same building I'm working in right now. But no, and, and I'm still working. I still work there in shifts. And, you know, I, um, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm committed to that place. And uh, we've started movements surrounding it. And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of stuff going on. We're advocating for change, not uh, there's, you know, and that's the thing. There's very, so this is a great example. We turned down a class action lawsuit. Oh, interesting. That's not what we're about. We are not trying to, I work for a living. So does everybody else. We are not trying to figure out a way to get in the Catholic's pocket. Okay. What we asked for from them was better training, harm reduction on, on site, a prescriber in the building that can help with mental health, you know, things like this. We're not, we're not looking for um, personal gain. Right. And frankly, you know, many of the people that work there for many years have already moved off into other social services just from the moral, ethical dilemmas. But, you know, I think they're making change. I mean, I think it's a positive reality. You talked about moving into the uh, sort of defund the police space, and I get, and I, that must be uh, your involvement with the uh, Safe Crisis Response Employee Advocacy Movement. Is that right? Okay, so my, uh, this movement was started by um, um, Crescent Munson. She is a part of the lead team now, the Law Enforcement Assistance Division, and she and, and and myself. I was involved in the initial group as well, and uh, Anna Shreve, another kind of big up and coming social services person. So we started this movement because we have been in the defund the police space for a year. Meaning I particularly live in Bellingham, Washington, but wherever you live in the United States, the police have stopped answering behavioral health calls. And there's a lot of reasons for that. It's now been legislated that they will not do that. So um, that they will not stop or that they will not answer those calls. They will not answer those calls. Really? And so yes. And so that has happened on the 20, I believe it was the 20, 21st, so tomorrow. It's, it's, it's one of the, it's coming or now, right in July. Okay. The actual Washington legislation goes through with the new bill. And yes, they are no longer doing that. But they've known this was coming. The police have known this was coming. And they stopped last June. Last oh, June, I work in, the, in one of the areas that is the highest behavioral health mental health, you know, 911 call dispatch for our city. And so, you know, then about a year ago, it started being that they would not answer calls. They would only take start case numbers over the phone. Okay. And so then we started getting left without armed response possible. Okay. And so we would get into these spaces i remember there was a, a, a what the equivalent of a bar fight basically inside of the building with six individuals and i was alone in that and when i called 911 because there was just all kind of physical violence that it, i had lost control of the ability of too many people um i called 911 and the answer i got was when there has been a a stabbing shooting or Someone who will press charges, we will come down. Wow. But they're and not going to come a, and stop it. Right. And that's a, that's an interesting space to get into when, because, you know, everybody talks about defund the police and, you know, I'm a hyper liberal and I have a lot of hyper liberal friends, very progressively liberal people. And many times you hear from them, well, just take, just get rid of the, get rid of the cops altogether. Just take all the guns, get rid of everybody and let's start over. And then when you work in spaces where somebody will try to chop your head off with a hatchet and that can happen. Sure. Uh, we had in Seattle, we had a case manager get stabbed to death and left in a, in a room all day. Oh my God. 
Yeah. And, you know, then on the tail end of that, we had a shooter in one of the buildings. And people died in both situations, obviously. Um, it doesn't happen all the time. It's not like that's, you know, every day you go to work. That, but it can happen when you work in those places and then there is no help coming. Wow. It, it really gets you. I mean, it, it was like the first time I read uh, Eli Weissel's Night. It was like I wasn't the book. It was like I wasn't good for a month. Well, the right. first time I had a show behavior where I did not have a backup and I had to figure it out on my own, I literally just had never been in that situation, even as somebody with 20, 30 years of experience in the field. And what was the outcome of that particular situation? I got out of it, right? So I, they, they kind of spilled into an elevator and I sort of sort of hit the button so it closed and took two of them upstairs. right. And so now I had two of them gone for however long I could do it. So I was able to deescalate the people that were there and get them outside. When the elevator came back down, I could only work with those two. And we got it work. And if we worked it out, right, it got worked out. And then I think my friend Crescent had come and helped, you know, stepped in. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, we got out of it. All right. But I watched a police officer get death threatened in front of my building in July by a, a, a person who told him, if you don't get in your car and walk the fuck away, I'm going to murder you. Oh, Jesus. I've never seen anything like that in my life. What is the only response that good, bad, or whatever police officer is going to have if somebody tells them to shut the fuck up or you're going to get murdered? They're going to deal with that. Right? Yeah. That could be weapons. That could be guns. That could be all kinds of stuff. I watched this guy get in his car and leave. And later I talked to him and he was like, look, down at the jail, we're capped. I can't pick him up if I arrested him. So even if I wanted to do this, which I don't, because this is all on camera. You guys got 40 cameras out here. Right. I got a body cam on. So, you know, no, I don't want to do that. And so, Jesus. yeah, new world. You're not an advocate for a 100% defund the, uh, defunding of the police. Here's what I think. What I think is... If that's the answer, which it's fine with me if it is, it's going to take some time to get to that or you're going to have a lot of people um, that don't make it out of this. So yeah. uh, I think that there are, I, like I heard a plan recently where they're going to keep a, an officer with some of the teams as just backup for one year and then try to replace it with an EMT and see how that goes. But I will say this. If you look at programs like Cahoots in, um, in Eugene, Oregon, which is behavioral health response, that program started in 1989. They've been doing that for 32 years in Eugene, Oregon. The police do not answer 911 calls for behavioral health, addiction, or, or mental health. And so and, it's been going on since 1989. Yeah. And wow. so you know, anybody out there could go look at that, and that's, that's cool. The idea that this can't work is ridiculous. The idea that you might need police response, a, a really well-trained group of people to respond to highly violent situations, that happen in our gun society, then yes, I am, I am all about that. I, I don't want to have a situation where, um, I, you know, I'm all about gun control. So I don't want to have a situation where I get people starting to arm themselves all over this country. Uh, I don't need that. Yeah. At least also, any more than already has happened. Well, well spoken. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, and any more than it already is an epidemic, but, um, yeah, I don't want that. And I don't want, to have a situation where there's a shooter at the mall and I don't have a response to that, you know, cause yeah, obviously 
my nonviolent crisis de-escalation ass is not going to be successful there, probably. All right? We can all understand that. Intentionality matters. Okay? So for there to be some response to that, cool. The idea that community policing should, one, in America, that when somebody serves in the military and is in combat, that their reward for defending our country is to be shoved into policing with a weapon in their hand and, you know, they did not get the chance to go to John Hopkins and be a, a, a surgeon, which is what they should be, which is when they come back from war. I, in my opinion, you should not be able to be a police officer if you've served in combat. And I understand that there are skill sets involved, but I think those are the wrong skill sets for community policing. And so I would like to see when GIs come back, they have incredible opportunities at their, at their, that going into the Army can become a life-altering reality, right? Right. And that would be wonderful, but I do not believe they should be serving as police. And I think we have to change our model of community policing. And, you know, I am personally moving into this space. I'm, um, there's a heart team here and a lead team and there's, there's different teams that are going out and I'm going to be on one of them. So, um, I'm kind of a nonviolent crisis de-escalating Jedi. And I think of myself <laughs> as that. I really do. And I, that's kind of braggadocious, but I really do think of myself like that creating safe space for trauma to be lessened for people to be able to get help. And, you know, we're going to be rolling out with some mental health professionals and, you know, EMTs and nurses and those kind of people. And, you know, getting out there in the mix and showing people that this nonviolent approach actually works really well. And, you know, yeah, there's probably going to be some nonviolent crisis de-escalators die across the country doing this. Sure. But I mean, police officers die in, you know, in the line of duty Absolutely. too. I mean, that hardly and invalidates the, the process. Right. And what's the ratio of people that were not involved in gun related realities because the police have a certain protocol of response, not right. even that they're evil, but they have a protocol of response. Right. And so that protocol of response that's built out of this patriarchal idea of aggression and what it, how it governs is not right. And so we, we need to change that. And so that's what we're going to try to do. And like you said, you know, police officers also die in the line and that it is the kind of stuff that happens. But I will say this, my man, is it's not hippies anymore because <laughs> uh, the bravest people, I talked about this, this person, Crescent Munson, she maybe weighs 125 pounds soaking wet. Anna Shreve also maybe 120 pounds soaking wet are some of the bravest people I have ever been around in my entire life. Watching these really powerful, fierce young women in this field step in and roll up into a hyper-violent situation with not a, not a single, not even a can of mace, and just put their shoulders back, head up, and are like, okay, let's go. It's super inspiring to be around, man. It is like, it feels like Top Gun with these people. <laughs> well, I bet it. And, you know, it's, it's such a refreshing, uh, it, it's not refreshing. It's, it's, it's a refreshing reality to show to people because we have this, this idea. And, and again, I, I believe that there are elements in the world which feed this preoccupation that force must be met with force and that if you are small, then you cannot fight large. 
you know, right. like it, everything is, is must be like battle for battle must be sort of pound for pound. And to show that as I think a very, is a very powerful thing because it, it upends this notion that everything has to be a fight or at the end of the day, the person who is most right is the person who can throw hands the, the best yes. or the most or the fastest. Well, and I watched, I watched this happen in a situation that I tried to deescalate and could not, and it almost went violent. I had to re- get out of there. I watched the, the one person I was talking about, Anna, walk into that situation and deescalate and get it right and get everybody in the right place and do the right thing and got the guy who was possibly suicidal to get back in the building and all that stuff. I've wow. watched it happen. Like I said, it's kind of like being a Jedi. It's sort of like you can move things and move people in ways that it, it feels strange to others watch it. And they're like, how'd you get him to do that? I'm like, well, it's called a walk down, which is what you don't realize is if somebody's on drugs or, or that it's kind of like dancing. If you just sort of amble forward a little bit, they'll back up. Right. And not aggressively, just in a meandering reality. You can do it sure. backwards. Too. Little tricks that, that you, that you can use paralanguage and physical space with and, you know, and it, it's kind of cool to watch when somebody's good at it. You know, I used to work in a cannabis dispensary up here and th- th- something happened once that really puts me in mind of what you're talking about. I was, I was working the late shift. It was me and, and a young gal and this guy came in and he was, uh, he was a, a homeless guy and he wanted me to throw away some of his trash. He had a, a pizza box or something. And I said, well, no, I'm, I'm not doing that. There's garbage outside, man. It stinks. You know, like there's food in there. I, I don't want that smell in here. Absolutely. And he, he really was not happy about it. And he just started coming at me with, you know, you think you're better than me and all this bullshit, which was not true. And, right. um, then he said something, he said something about, uh, he can't exactly what he said, but I interpreted it as a threat. And I told him, I said, that is a threat. If you don't leave, I'm going to call the police. And he said, no, that's a threat. And right. I, and I stopped and I said, technically speaking, you are correct. And he didn't know what to, he froze. He literally froze. <laughs> And he looked at me and he said, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for that. At least um, I'll go. I'll take this. Sorry. Bye. And that's all it took was just me. And, and not to say that would work every time, but just, it was so fascinating for me to see the power of just giving him a point. Look, man, you don't know it. You don't know it, but, but you just use what we call validation responding, which is a whole way of getting people to stop when they're, when they're escalating is, is when you lose that level of civility, sometimes simple validations of your ideas are shocking to people. So when you say, what you just said to me in retort there was actually right on. You're right on that. That is a threat. You're actually correct. It stops people in their tracks because that validation responding sometimes is so foreign to people that have lost that civility, being unsheltered, being homeless. And, and so, yeah, that's a technique it is, and it works. Not always, like you said. Yeah, sure. Definitely. Validation response is like part of the game. Yeah. And so, well done, man. That was a great de-escalation, actually. Thing is, I don't know. I, I don't like, like I said, I, I've, I've, had, I've been in fights. I've won them. I've lost them. I don't like them. I'm too old to be throwing hands now. I'm almost 40. Right, I hear the, you. <laughs> you know, the, the kind of hits you take at, at our age now, man, like the hits that last. Nope. And the last thing I need is some brain damage from some asshole because we're, you know, squabbling over something stupid. Right. And, and so that's how this scream movement came about is that, and this is so, so cool is that we just recognized the space early. We were like, 
okay, there's this, it was police response, but now legislatively that's changing. So where's the crisis response coming from? And who represents these new people in the, in the world who are going to step into that space that was being um, populated by police, you know, interaction, but are now going to be not doing that. That is a whole group of people that don't, you know, like for instance, I've got people that have PTSD for my job. They can't get long-term PTSD disability, not to like not work, but to get the therapy they need because they're not in that legislation of EMT fire police. Oh man. Right. But they're, in the job they're they're in the job right they're in that same job and if you ask the EMT fire and police i actually got my therapist from one of the officers he was like oh, you should talk to this person because she's really good so i'm in therapy again because that's kind of a necessary thing when you do these jobs to, i can imagine you don't want to bring that to your mom to your house your mom your wife your kids your friends so a place to safe space to talk about it and it's not always good when you get social workers that have tough jobs together talking about it. So, you know, that's what it's for. But I got mine from, from a police officer, a community police officer. It was just like, hey, man, you probably I've, I noticed you were having trouble in this. You kind of got loud. I know that's not you. If you're feeling it, I got a girl you can talk to. You know, like stuff like that. Like, you know, it's uh, they share. It, for us, we're all in the same group. We don't find – it's funny how I get – really liberal people around and I get really conservative people around. And then after everybody's been dealing with violence for a while, they all take care of each other one way or another, even if they don't like some opinions, they're like, you know, shut up. Don't give me that opinion, but are you okay? And so earlier I was talking about hope and you know, that to me is, is a real sign of hope that you can, you can have these places where people on either side of the political divide can come together and sort of just, just be, because, you know, we're obviously, I think in a, at least in terms of American politics, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think you're in a, a sort of place of unprecedented polarization. Totally. And, you know, sort of just as a, as a dispassionate observer, you know, again, I have a lot of American friends. I, I love sure. America, you know, the mythology of America, especially, you know, but, you know, I, I've been sort of struggling with trying to imagine a future where the country stays whole under the current conditions. And so this sort of naturally leads me into one of my questions, which as someone who works where you do, who has the artistic inclinations you do, who has seen what you've seen over the course of a career in social work and and hip hop and as a writer and someone who thinks, what do you see as the future of America? You know, so this is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. um, And I I think it's pretty simple. I'm a little bit of a blue collar cat. So I kind of like to keep things basic sometimes. I feel like a lot of these concepts get so over intellectualized sometimes that they don't get back down to the root. Okay. And, you know, I think that where we are in America specifically is that we have a culture that has now come to a reckoning point where they're like, look, the white man did it in America. He's the bad guy that happened. And we can't just move forward in a, in a way where, where we just sort of over time try to get the system as good as we can. We have to have a reckoning moment where it, it stops generally. And I think historically, you know, generally we're moving toward blood. I mean, that is, that is the 
sort of patriarchal male dominated reality of the history of all time is that when we get to places where we are, where we have these ideological differences, these polarizations, these, these us and them mentalities that, um, you know, we're headed toward blood. We're eventually headed toward some kind of uprising. Hmm. Well, I think that nowadays you have, there's another concept, which is this idea that these societies can get so large and controlled in such a large way. And, and where, you know, with privacy issues and all those things of control that you can take the revolution out of a society, right? So you can create society that can't be revolted against. And there's some truth to that too. We may be in that mode where we can't really revolt against this society as a whole. Um, It has to be figured out in another way. Um, And so, yeah, that's where I, I feel like we're on this tipping point right now where the problem with America is pretty simple. And it is that we have a disease of white pride in America. We always have second sons coming over from England, you know, people, and I know a lot of people listen to a lot of the podcasts surrounding this, but you know, this idea that, that we as Americans were, you know, we, we look at, well, that was back then. Well, yeah, except for back then it was a morally negative decision. So most civilized places around the world had abolished slavery by that point definitely Europe and all the places where these second sons came from. It was a very open moral decision that was made in that time. And it was evil then. And we give a pass for that where we have forefathers and founding fathers, and the deification of this. So that's what it's going to take. It's going to take us stop deifying our history. We need to tear every fucking statue of every white slave owner that ever lived in America down. That's Thomas Jefferson, all of them. They all need to come down. Everything needs to change on that level. Short of my 100-year moratorium on white men running for office, we have to have an absolute flip upside down, that, that language you hear where let the people who built our country run it. White America needs to stop having a viewpoint of itself as mavericks and yeah. start to have a viewpoint of itself as... People that come from hatchet decapitations, that come from the rape and murders of entire cultures, those are the people that we come from. And that does not mean that all those people as human beings live some fully negative morality. What it means is we have to be real about who we are and where we came from. And people across all cultures, yes, have all kinds of issues. Yes, that's true. But white male aggression and patriarchal domination and colonization is the great stamp of human history. And so in America, we have these ideas that we can somehow beat the system, basically. Like we made this great Vegas hotel for ourselves and we don't want to lose our Vegas hotel. So we're going to figure out a way to fix it. We're going to rebuild it in some way where we get to keep our Vegas, but we don't have to, you know, we'll just be more socially just about everything. I don't know about all that, right? I don't know how that's all going to work. I think this country needs to have a, um, you know, obviously a less capitalist aesthetic. I think that my favorite American politician, AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I think she represents my my viewpoints perfectly. Socialism is not a, uh, it's not a four letter word. I think any ism is probably wrong, but I think there's a lot of, 
a lot of positives toward you know, just having a society that generally cares more about itself um, than it does about the elite. Um, but, you know, we got issues, man. It doesn't matter whether we in America try to figure out any kind of social justice. Climate's got to come first. Oh, I meant to that. We have one. to figure out climate or we're not going to have a place to figure our social justice out. That more people don't preface every statement with that. It sort of baffles me because it, it, is, abso- be. it is absolutely not, not just the defining challenge of this generation. It is the defining challenge of all generations because I truly believe that if it, it is not addressed, it will be the end of generations. It will. Absolutely. And so, the, you know, the peril we face of how to fix the and, you know, these overarching and underarching umbrellas we live under. So when somebody hears that in the world, it's kind of like saying all lives matter, where it's like, yeah, what the fuck ever. It's not the point of whether all lives matter. It's the point that you can't stop for five fucking seconds and say black lives matter. You you can't make that words come out of your mouth and then not have anything else to say after it. Right. And so we can't do that. And that's the other part of this is like, we have all these overarching and underarching umbrellas of, of, you know, of sexism and all the terrible homophobia and LGBTQ plus just, terror that's in this country of of discrimination we have racial injustice across the board we have all these horrible injustices and they're these umbrellas and so yes if you're a person in that group absolutely that's where your eyes are that's you when your kid goes out to drive to the prom he's the one that might die so yeah i feel you that's where you want to focus and that's where you should focus but we still have these overarching umbrellas above these things. And when, you know, when white people start talking about climate, it makes people that are not white start being like, okay, well, that's the same white guy that every time I start talking about this always has something else I'm supposed to be thinking about. Very true. Yeah. Right. However, we have to get beyond those kind of dialogues if we're going to save our own asses. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, the, what you said about, uh, you know, the, the things we're trying to take with us, um, and we, we should probably wind it up here, so I'll finish with this. It reminded me of, of a verse from Matthew, and I, I, I don't know exactly the, the wording, but basically it's, uh, I think it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. <laughs> and I think as a society, we, you know, the eye, our, our eye of the needle, that's the change we need to make. But I think we are so delusional about the amount we can take with us through that eye. Well, my man, if I could get everybody in the United States to learn the simple thing that I teach my my people that come into my building, I teach them a very simple three word phrase. So after a year, they can start to metabolize it and do critical thinking. And that three word phrase is choices have consequences. And that's what I say to America. Choices have consequences. And I, I don't think it can, be, it can be put any better than that. Lee, thank you so much for all this time, man. I've really enjoyed this conversation. There's tons of stuff uh, we didn't even get to, so I'm going to have to get you back at some point. I, I appreciate you. And you, yeah, you know I'm a fanboy, so it's been, uh, it's been, it's been fun for me. So <laughs> oh, oh, me too. This has been great. I, the only reason, I, as I say, I've got a, another call here in a few minutes, so I've got to uh, get Absolutely. ready for that. Otherwise, we could keep going all day. I, you, you, I still am going to take you up on that beer someday, man. Absolutely. So, opening, you're not going to be able to hide for much longer. <laughs> we used to have a ferry that goes right from Victoria down to Bellingham. I don't think they're around anymore. 
But uh, awesome, man. But yeah, soon. So again, my guest is Lee Bennett, uh, vocalist for Riot at the Dojo, and so many other things. Uh, Lee, where can folks find you online, and when can where should they look for the Great Divide? Well, you know what we can you can look at. Uh, we are at Riot at the Dojo everywhere. So like you know Twitter anywhere. Everywhere you listen to music, wherever that is, we're there too. So whether you're Spotify or iTunes or whatever, you can always just ride at the dojo. Us, we you can go to rideatthedojo.com. Yeah, ride at the dojo. Perfect. Everywhere. Well, thanks again, man. All right. Thanks again to Lee Bennett from Riot at the Dojo for hanging out with me. I learned a ton from Lee, and I hope you did too. I also strongly encourage you to check out the music of Riot at the Dojo. You heard a little bit in the show, but there is much more out there for you to enjoy. You can find their debut EP, Alien America, and their full-length album, Black Box, pretty much wherever you stream your music. Or if you'd like to own it, you can pick up a copy on iTunes. Also, as Lee mentioned, keep an eye out for their upcoming single, The Great Divide. Thanks for joining me here, folks. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you listening. If you liked what you heard, please leave me a five-star review on iTunes or really wherever you can leave. Podcast reviews, it helps bump the show's visibility, and that in turn brings more people to the show. If you want to hear more of my voice, you can find me over at the Ghost Story Guys podcast, and that is a bi-weekly storytelling podcast that I host with the great Paul Bestel. You can find that at ghoststoryguys.com or wherever fine podcasts live. If you want early access to ad-free episodes of this show, head on over to patreon.com slash largelythetruth. For only $2 a month, you get access to not only the early ad-free episodes, but also any bonus conversations that happen between me and the guest, which need to be cut for running time or any other reason. Currently, we've got a 20-minute conversation with Darko Richards, my guest on the previous episode, where we talk about our favorite film scores, and that was a lot of fun. Again, that's $2 a month at patreon.com slash largely the truth. Big thanks to Peter of Pizzanta Music for my fabulous theme song. You can find more from him by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever you get your tunes. And thank you for listening. Without you folks, there wouldn't be much point. Until next time, I hope the night takes you to the same strange and wonderful places it takes me. And remember... If you're not sure what comes next, put a call out into the dark. You never know who's going to pick up. I'll see you next time.